Hello, everyone. Welcome to Nerd Unscripted. This is your host, Tony Vidig. And today I thought we would kind of change things up a little bit. Um, I thought I would spend some time sharing a bit of my business origin story. Um, partly because I was inspired by a friend of mine to do so. Um, but uh, second of all, one of the things that I found is very often in us transitioning through our lives, there's a lot of times where we're not quite sure if we're making the right choices or not, if we're heading in the right direction. Sometimes we kind of forget to smell the roses along the way, so to speak. And um, I wouldn't consider my business origin story to be anything more special than anyone else's, but it is what it is. And I've shared bits and pieces of this, of course, over different periods of time, but never really quite like in this setting. Um, and so anyway, it is what it is. Uh, whenever... I was in high school, especially my senior year. My primary focus was art. And um, I was also um, in college prep, and I did really well. I had great grades, always pretty much straight A's, um, with a few exceptions here and there. And so in preparing for my senior year, I did all the the things that you would expect a, an advanced college prep guy to do. You know, I signed up for all the top courses, you know, um, trigonometry and calculus, um, advanced biology, chemistry, all that kind of stuff. And then I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was, I'm not going to use this in real life. So why on earth am I taking it? And so I decided to drop all the classes and take art classes. So instead of all of those things, I had drawing and painting, color and design, pottery, uh, leather work, you know, all of these kind of classes. I kept chemistry just because I'm a total chemistry nerd. And um, I kept advanced English because it was mostly writing and I, you know, wanted to learn more about that. And um, and what worked out was that English was my first period class and chemistry was my last period class. And so the rest of the middle of the day was just art. And um, I was also in a marching band as a drummer. And so I had essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card, um, uh, a signed pass from the band director that I could literally go, quote-unquote, practice anytime that I wanted, any period. I could just get out of it, um, which was never the art classes because I really enjoyed those. Uh, so anyway, uh, whenever it came to that time where you start thinking about college and all of that, I was too and wanted to uh, go to school primarily for photography. That was my thing. And I, so I started interviewing 
and um, like Pittsburgh Institute of Art and some of the other uh, uh, courses or colleges, I mean, like that. And I remember talking to my parents and they were concerned um, that, uh, first of all, you know, they, my dad worked for the local school district uh, as uh, a maintenance and repair guy, basically. And uh, my mom was a full-time seamstress. So they weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination. And um, so they didn't have a lot of extra money. And they were concerned about me going into debt to get, you know, an education based around something that I may or may not be able to make money from. And so, in other words, I got the starving artist speech. But I still interviewed with colleges, and a couple of them were definitely interested. And But I remember this one college came, they had a four years master's program uh, for art that included photography. And the recruiter really wasn't very good at her job, in my opinion. Um, and she was telling me how I needed college, if I was ever going to amount to anything, and blah, 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 you know, all of that. And um, she told me, I asked her how much each term was or whatever. And she told me what the amount was. And I mean, you know, I'm a kid, you know, 18. And I said, I forget what the amount was, but my response was, I could buy a Porsche for that much money. Like, why would, why on earth would I spend that on an education times four when I could use that same money and buy a Porsche? And she's like, well, Porsche isn't going to provide for your family and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, no thanks. I said, I think what I'll do is just get an apprenticeship. And she's like, well, good luck with that if you can find one. And that's how she said it. And <laughs> that moment polarized me for the journey that I've been on the rest of my life and why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Because it focused me for the first time really focused me for the first time and I responded back to her oh I'll not only get an apprenticeship but by the time your kids are graduating from your college I will already have four years work experience and out earn them and so that's what I did now that apprenticeship kind of took on a very strange form in the fact of I was looking for a job and my aunt called me and said, I think I found a job for you, Tony. And I'm like, oh, it's great. What is it? She's like, the local newspaper is, is looking for a janitor. <laughs> I'm like, great. You know, it's the last thing in the world that I wanted to do. Well, actually, it was a janitor slash somebody to take the papers off the printing press. Okay. And uh, so... I went and applied for the job. Turns out the owner of the place was on vacation, so I was hired by the vice president of the company um, who liked me. The owner of the company didn't like me. She told me later that if it had been up to her, I'd have never been hired. I don't know what her problem was, but anyway. So I got this job working for a newspaper as a janitor, making... 235 an hour, I think, is what I was paid back then. <laughs> We're talking 19, 1980, 
somewhere around there. Um, and it, so it seems insignificant, right? Like this insignificant job um, that you love to hate. And I was a nobody. I didn't know anything. And uh, but I knew photography because I was already doing that. And so I was there for just a couple months and was getting to know the staff and everything and decided to take my portfolio, such as it was at the time, in to show the editor. And the editor um, decided to give me a photo assignment. And I think I've shared that before. I was photographing these four-star generals at Carlisle Army Barracks, or I think that's where it was. Um, and it was a very scary but empowering experience. And so I started getting more assignments, and then I evolved into doing all of their darkroom work in addition to working full-time as the janitor and newspaper guy. So... I was there for, I guess, a couple of years. And over the course of that time, they taught me how to run other things like offset cameras and uh, folding, you know, the folding machines and those kinds of things. And then, um, and I got to know several of the staff really well. And um, so after that, I decided my sister had moved to New Jersey and, um, got a job down there. And so she was after, after me to come down and join her and, uh, said that she had a job for me and, or she could get a job for me. Her boyfriend, now husband, uh, could get me a job working as an assistant manager at Wendy's making two sixty-five a week salary, which was a lot more money than what I was making as a janitor. I think whenever I left um, the news chronicle, I was making two sixty five an hour or three twenty five an hour, something like that, only because the minimum wage of wage had been raised. Um, but you know, it was still experience. And so I, um, so I wouldn't really call that as an apprenticeship per se. Um, in my mind though, I was on my way, <laughs> certainly not arrived. And then, um, so I moved to New Jersey, got the job as a assistant manager at Wendy's, discovered that um, I hated it and kind of sucked at it. <laughs> I really wasn't a great manager. Um, the only thing that was cool was free food, you know. Um, and so I started uh, looking into other job possibilities and, good morning, Mark, and I saw an ad in the paper for a local printing company who was looking for an offset camera operator. And I had some experience with that because of the uh, newspaper. And so I went in there like I owned the place, like I knew what I was doing. And basically, I had discovered by then that I was a pretty quick learner. And um, so I assured them that, you know, I could do the job. And so I got hired. and. Um, that place was a great place to work. It was called uh, Laurier Press. And um, it's a commercial printing company that serviced a lot of clients in Atlantic City. Run by two brothers who were in their 70s and very, very old school. The company had been started in a basement of one of the hotels in Atlantic City in 1923 by their dad. 
and then they moved out of town into um, uh, Egg Harbor City is the name of the town that they moved it to, which is about 30 miles outside of Atlantic City. And, um, and so I started working there, and the place, honestly, was a dump. I mean, they just, like, well, a company that's been in business that long, and it, it was all pretty much all guys except for the front office, and so no organization whatsoever, and everything was kind of dirty and all of that. They didn't really have a janitor, per se, or anything. So I decided that I was going to organize and clean and stuff like that. Well, that didn't go over very well with the general manager because he was used to things the way they were, and he's this you know, old Italian guy. A lot of them were Italians, actually. The brothers' last names were Rodolini, you know, and so classic Italian. And, um, and it was funny because by then the, like my work ethic had really started to kick in. Not quite sure how it happened. It just did, you know, <laughs> like all, I, I think it, it was because I, I liked the job. You know, I think that's really what it came down to. Well, that experience working there ultimately <clears throat> took me into commercial photography because they had a number of clients that um, they needed commercial work for, um, yacht manufacturers and um, real estate, local real estate folks and all of that. So um, museums and everything. So uh, as a part of that job, but kind of separate, it gave me the opportunity to work with a lot of great equipment that I couldn't afford, you know, like um, four by five uh, cameras, um, the really high end four by fives and all of that. And so I started doing a lot of commercial work uh, through that company, in addition to, you know, learning how to do all the offset stuff, um, uh, page layout and, and stripping. Because back then, uh, desktop publishing was barely starting to come onto the screen or onto the scene. So um, whenever you wanted to print a book, you shot all the pages individually or separately and cut them up and then lay them out on ruled uh, uh, vinyl, basically, and then burned onto a plate and so on. Crazy. Um, and so I started doing a lot of commercial work and photographing for the local museum, uh, two or three different yacht manufacturers, which, you know, we take these, it was a Linhoff, the, uh, camera that I used about an $8,000 camera with the lens. And, uh, so we take this camera, uh, with a tripod, which I almost never use, but big honking camera and, uh, go two, three miles out. Uh, on like a 46-foot yacht and then photograph the other 46-foot yacht or 54 or 60 or whatever it was that I was photographing uh, from the back of this other boat or up on the top deck or whatever because a lot of them were sport fishermen type boats, um, you know, for the deep sea fishing and stuff. And I had a blast except for the once or twice where I nearly dropped the camera into the ocean. Um, so that wasn't fun. But Still, it was uh, building a repertoire of skills, you know, that were right along the line of what I ultimately wanted to do anyway, take pictures and art and that kind of stuff. And so, um, long story short, I, I got to a period of my life where 
I, like I knew I was called to teach, but given the context of where I was at the time, um, we attended a church locally that my aunt introduced me to my aunt and uncle lived down there as well. And, uh, I enjoyed the church. It was much more progressive than anything I had ever been to before. And, um, and so somewhere along the line, I decided that I really needed to pursue this thing of teaching. Uh, and if I'm going to teach, you know, given my upbringing and everything, it meant that I needed to teach the Bible. And um, not that that's a bad thing or anything like that, but I needed to. And so ultimately, I quit my job at the printing company and uh, went out to Rabbit Bible Training Center. I figured, you know, I basically grew up listening to Kenneth Hagin and all of those guys for years, so why not go to their Bible school? Like, to me at the time, it made logical sense. And uh, one of my spiritual moms um, helped fund my adventure out there because I was poor. And then I got out there and I couldn't find work. Uh, out there meaning uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, the school is actually in Broken Arrow. And so I had trouble finding work. And um, there were a lot of design jobs out there for, you know, in the commercial printing and photography and all of that. But, you know, like a lot of folks experience, I kept getting the whole overqualified, you know, spiel, which is bullshit, basically. Um, and so I couldn't find a job, which meant I couldn't pay for school or where I was living, which was a like a studio apartment. And so finally I did get a job at a pizza place, simple Simons on South Lewis still there as far as I know. And it was awesome because a, I love pizza. B it meant that I could eat because <laughs> I was dropping a lot of weight. Plus I was playing for the college volleyball team and all of that. So, uh, and because I was poor, um, my car ultimately got repossessed, so I had to rely on rides or walking or running to school, um, which was, you know, like eight miles one way. And uh, so I dropped a lot of weight, and I was pretty fit, actually. But um, And that would have been 1986, somewhere around there. And so um, ultimately, it came up to the next semester, and I enjoyed the process. Um, but you know, I was listening to some of the students and they were talking about how they'd have to jet away for the weekend and speak at some big conference and then they come back again. And then there was me, you know? And so I got to the second semester and I couldn't afford it. I didn't have the money for it and my family couldn't afford it. And, um, I had to make a decision. And I remember at the time, um, I was going to church at, um, uh, what's the name? I forget the name of the church now. It'll come to me. Um, it's the big church out there. It's one of the big churches out there in Tulsa. Uh, Oral Roberts University, like where that church was, ORU campus. So I went to that church. And I think Oral Roberts' <coughs> son was the one who was the primary there. Massive, like three or 4,000 people. It was crazy. And it was only about two miles from where my place was. And so I would walk there, you know, back and forth. I walked everywhere. And um, I remember 
walking to church one night and I had no money, hardly at all. I mean, at that point, other than pizza, I was living on French fries and Kool-Aid, mostly because you could get French fries at the local grocery store, five bags for a dollar. And oh, Raymond noodles, of course, you know, college food of choice. <laughs> and um, I remember walking to church and thinking that, you know, well, maybe things will work out somehow and, you know, God will inspire somebody to give me money or, you know, to help me out or whatever. And I'll never forget, like up until that time, there was no me hearing anything from God or anybody else for that matter in, you know, in my thoughts or spirit or, you know, whatever. Um, matter of fact, it was kind of a big deal to me because I'd, I'd hear all of these people talking about, you know, well, God spoke to them and said X and all of that. And I never heard anything, you know, <laughs> it was like complete silence. And, uh, this is actually before I had gotten my studio apartment. I was still living in a hotel, uh, courtesy American Express. And, um, I remember one, one evening I was so distraught over this whole thing of, you know, my fellow classmates talking about how God talked to them all the time and wasn't saying a thing for me. And after all, I was going to his college, you know, whatever. And uh, so I just decided that I wasn't letting it alone until I heard God's voice speak to me in my head. It didn't have to be audible. It could just be a thought, whatever. And so I'm praying and walking around and pacing and crying and all, it was kind of pathetic if you think about it. And this went on for hours upon hours and like, why won't you talk to me? You know, and all of this craziness. <laughs> it's so silly to think about it now. But anyway, just all of this. And, and finally, I just stopped after like six or seven hours of this craziness mostly because I was exhausted, you know, it was like totally out of energy. And so I just stopped and I'm laying there kind of sobbing, my eyes closed. It's dark by now. And all of a sudden I hear this thing in my head that says, are you done now? And I'm like, huh? <laughs> you know? like are you finished because i couldn't get a word in edgewise and that was the beginning of these voices in my head you can call it god i prefer to refer to it as the divine because god is such a a changeable construct based on who you talk to versus the divine i mean hell it could have been aliens who knows but to me it ultimately doesn't matter because that voice, even if it was my own subconscious or higher self or whatever, has never led me astray. So I just will say that. So anyway, um, so that was the beginning of a long and prosperous uh, discussion time <laughs> that still goes on till today. And uh, so all of that backtracking to say I'm walking to church one night or on my way home from church or no, I was walking too. And I was just kind of praying and just what's going on and why, why are things the way they are? And it came very, very clear to me 
And it said, because you aren't supposed to be here. I'm like, what do you mean I'm not supposed to be here? I'm called to teach. And I kind of figured that meant teach for you. It's like, but that isn't it. You're not supposed to be here. And so you going to church to think that people are going to give to you, that isn't going to happen. And I said, why not? It's like, because as far as they're concerned, you're invisible because you're not supposed to be here. Well, nobody did give anything to me. But what happened was it got my attention to where I'm thinking, crap, I made a mistake. So the next day I went to school and um, the second semester was getting ready to start. And so I went to the dean and basically told him what I just told you, more or less. And he said, you know, it's like normally we encourage our students to stay in school, but after hearing your story, I think you might be right. Uh, the problem was, I'm in Oklahoma. <laughs> you know, my family's in Pennsylvania. I was living in New Jersey. And... I had no money, like none. And so I talked to my parents. You know, I had to always call collect. Talked to my parents. They, I guess, mentioned something to my sister. So my sister actually sent me um, money for a bus ticket. And so I couldn't take everything with me, so I packed some of it into one of my former, now former classmates, um, basements, which I never got back. <laughs> Another story. Um, and got on a bus and took the bus from Tulsa to Pennsylvania to Harrisburg. And I'd like to highly recommend that you never do that. <laughs> it was the longest trip I think of. Like, I like road trips, but man, that was brutal. Like, on a bus. Just not fun. So... My mom and dad went to the place to pick me up and um, to the bus terminal. And I dropped so much weight. I was down to 160 pounds. And uh, my mom literally walked right past me. <laughs> Didn't even recognize me. The clothes that I was wearing were like just hanging on me because I lost so much weight. And uh, my dad recognized me. Thank God for dad. <laughs> and he's like... Rosie, Tony's over here, you know. <laughs> and so they took me home and spent about a month fattening me, fattening me back up again. And uh, ultimately, I went back down to New Jersey. And because um, I needed a job. So I talked to the owner of the publishing or the printing company that I worked for. He not only gave me a job, uh, which they had hired my replacement, who I trained, but not only did he give me a job back, he bought me a car and gave it to me. He gave me a place to, to live in his own house. 
and gave me a $2 an hour raise from what I was making before I left. Sorry. So, obviously, I was greatly appreciative. And um, it was like I had never left. Like, things just picked up where they left off. And um, in that period of time, I met my first wife, and we got married, started having kids, got a house to rent and everything. And um, in the course of all of that, the general manager, uh, well, before that, I decided that, well, if I'm going to be here and do whatever, this place needed to be whipped into shape. And so I would start cleaning an, an area and the general manager would say, don't mess with anything. <laughs> and then um, he would leave for the day because he usually left early. And then after he left, I'd go do it anyway. <laughs> and uh, so finally, one of the brothers pulled him aside and said, why don't you just tie a really long rope on that boy and let him do his thing? Like, just let him go do his thing. And so that's what he did. And I completely reorganized that business. To the point where whenever he retired, they made me general manager. And um, I functioned in that capacity for several years, a couple years, until uh, 1993 which is when we moved to New Jersey or back to Pennsylvania. And the reason why we moved back to Pennsylvania, I knew for a while I had had this vision driving one day that I was supposed to be a, a book designer. I had never really done that. And I knew that like desktop publishing was really starting to become a thing. And I had gotten copies of Photoshop and Quark Express and some of those, they used to send them out like demo copies on disc. And my buddy and I, who owned a competitive uh, publishing company, well, he's a manager, his dad owned it. So he and I owned or managed the two primary publishing companies in South Jersey. So technically we are competitors, but we were also best friends. And so we go to all the conferences together and we go to the local university at night into their computer lab and play around with Quark Express and Photoshop. And that's when Photoshop was like version 2.0. And um, so it couldn't do most of what it does today. Um, but anyway, I knew that I was supposed to be a designer. And I'd had this vision where I had my own publishing company and video studio and all of this kind of stuff. I nearly wrecked because I was driving whenever it happened. And it's like everything around me just kind of vanished. And I saw this publishing and video company. And um, so anyways, I knew that it was supposed to happen, but I didn't know how. And I remember one day I was sitting at my desk and I was going through the mail nurse's postcard. I have no idea how I got this postcard or why or anything. Like from normal means. But it was a postcard about publishing your own book or help or 
that they were offering to help people publish their books. And it was a company called Companion Press. Never heard of them. But the, um, the company address is what stood out to me. It was Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, which is 11 miles from where I'm sitting right now. And I'm like, Companion Press, what in the world? So I called up my, my parents and I'm like, have you ever heard of this company? Like, no. <laughs> and so, like, I couldn't get it out of my head. And uh, around the same time, Courtney was born. I was working a lot of hours to because uh, she was born with a kidney condition. And so she was in, in the hospital more than out. And um, she had to have surgery and the surgery was failure and all that kind of stuff. And um, so I took a train from Atlantic City up to Harrisburg. And my, my dad picked me up and we went to this companion press, basically cold called just to check it out. Like I had no idea who it was. And so, um, I'm standing there waiting for somebody to come over and help me. And I notice these pictures hanging on the wall to the left. And I, so I'm looking at the pictures and all of a sudden I started recognizing all of these people from when I worked at the newspaper back when I was 18. And the, the editor from the newspaper was there. The head secretary from the newspaper was there. The photographer, primary photographer from the newspaper was there. Both sales managers from the paper was there. The, um, one of the typesetters from the paper was in this picture. And I'm looking at him like, why are all these people from the paper here? You know? Well, come to find out that the sales manager from the paper that I worked at, who I knew really well, was the one who started this company. And Companion Press was one of their um, labels, uh, one of their brands. Their primary company was called Destiny Image, which still exists today. It's run by the owner's son. The owner just passed away a year or so ago. Um, and so now like destiny image owns Harrison house and they have another branch called sound wisdom and a media company and all of that. But anyway, um, so I'm standing there and the guy who comes up to me is the former editor of the newspaper, the guy who gave me my chance as a photographer at the paper is now the person I'm talking to, you know? Um, 15 years later and, uh, or is that right? 80, see 1982 is when I left there or 83 and it's 90, 92. So 10 years later, we'll say. And so long story short, I started talking to him and, um, so he, he said something to the owner of the company and he's like, you'll never guess who stopped by here today. Tony Lottie, do you remember him? Well, that started a long conversation of between me and the owner of that, that company to where he ultimately offered me a job. Um, around the same time uh, is when we found out that Courtney's surgery wasn't a success and that the only people who could probably help her were the people, uh, the doctors in Hershey. PA at that teaching hospital. 
And so um, we moved to Pennsylvania, found a place to rent like three miles from where my house is now. And um, I started working at Destiny Image as a customer service uh, contact. So, or representative, CSR, you know, where I would work with authors and all of that. Work, you know, help them with their books. And we identified pretty quickly that I wasn't really great at that either. <laughs> um, but they were they were outsourcing all of their art and they were really looking to want to bring it in house. And at the same time, I had invested in some software, didn't have a computer, but I invested in some software. And so I had asked permission to load it on my computer, my work computer there, so that over my lunch break and stuff, I could play around with it. And um, so in one of the meetings, the general manager um, met with the publisher and said, you know, Tony's been doing some interesting design stuff on his lunch break. You know, I wonder if we should consider having him be the artist, like the, like head up a graphics department. Long story short, they decided to give me a chance. They gave me a budget to go buy any computer hardware software that I wanted. So, um, I mean, at the day in the day, the top of the line computer was a 48666 computer. So, you know, nothing to write home about really, but, but I had Photoshop and Quark Express and Painter and all of those programs. And so I got everything installed and, um, on like, oh, once they came, I got everything set up over the course of a week. And then on that Friday, the publisher called me into his office and he's like, everything come in? I'm like, yeah, everything working okay? I'm like, yeah, doing great. And he's like, awesome. Because I have a project that I'm going to start you on on Monday. And I'm like, oh, cool. What is it? And he's like, we're running a full page ad in the Saturday Evening Post. And I need you to design that ad. It's for a new book that we have coming out. Well, you probably could have knocked me over with a feather because, you know, my mind immediately went to my first ever design project is for the Saturday evening post. <laughs> I mean, it was like, what? Yeah, it's a national ad campaign. You know, we're rolling it out nationwide. Terrific. Like, that's when rubber meets the road or shit hits the fan. One of the two. And uh, so long story short, I pulled it off. And, um, became the head of the graphics department for a long time. It was just me and I was working 65 hours a week salary, but I was paid really well. And, um, and then we got into television production. And so I became like after hours. So I became the lead camera tech, uh, and camera runner for that as well as, you know, helping run sound because my dad was a sound engineer. So I knew a lot about that. And dad actually helped set up all of that. And, um, so I was having a blast. I was learning a lot. I was doing a lot of art, designing a lot. Um, and then I burned out and I mean, crashed and burned in a really big way. And, uh, so ended up cutting my hours back to like 50, <laughs> you know, which is a dramatic change compared to what I was working. But I mean, at the time I was earning, I think around 32 bucks an hour, which, you know, in the nineties wasn't bad. 
at all. And so around that time, I realized that I could take out on outside clients. And, um, and so I started doing that just to, you know, kind of increase cash flow and everything. And I got to the point where I was making almost as much with those clients as I was at my job. And there was a lot of turmoil going on in the company at the time because of some things that had kind of played out in not the best way. And so I ended up for different reasons, but still ended up being the same end result of uh, leaving the company at the same time 20 other employees did. Like the head of every department left, um, including myself and the writers and several others. And it was a really tough time for the company. And it was a tough time for me because the owner of the company was one of my mentors. And he turned his back on me, basically, because he thought I was leaving for the same reasons everyone else was. And I thought he would be excited that I was leaving the nest. And so it was a tough thing to work through. Um, But leading up to that, I started having these visions where I uh, would see myself, and I shared some of these visions before, where I'd be like standing on a beach or up on a mountain or things like that. And I was constantly being told, I'm teaching you a new way to see. And you're going to show other people how to see this way. And then um, we had um, this one preacher that came in, a prophetic guy, and I think I shared this story before too, how shortly after one of these, you know, new way to see visions happened, this guy comes in like the next day, and I hadn't told anyone, and I always sat up front. Um, My logic was, you know, like if the power of God is going to flow, I'm going to be first in line to get it. Like that was my rationale. And uh, so I sat, I was sitting up front and he looked over at me and he pointed at me and he said, God's teaching you a new way to see. And it's like, you're up on top of a mountain and you're going to be able to see things like nobody else has seen before. And you're going to take that vision and teach other people and just on and on and on. Well, I was dumbfounded. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And not only that, not only did he do that, but several other people in this space of a week also came up to me and said, I don't know why I feel like I need to tell you this, but boom, same thing. And so then shortly after that is whenever I left the company. So I was there for seven years. And so beginning January 1st, 2000, why not kick off a new millennium with a new business? I started my own business. I went into business for myself. And, um, was doing design work at the same time. I started a publishing company called healing land publishing and was publishing, um, native American authors primarily. And I think I published 13 different authors, something like that. Uh, the only problem was I wasn't really charging them. And so (laughs) it wasn't exactly a sustainable business. Like I was doing it more to help them than to help me, which is very noble. Um, except that it doesn't pay the bills and it led to a lot of resentment and issues later on and everything. So it was a huge mistake to take that approach. And we had established a nonprofit organization called healing the land and everything. So the design work was going really decent. I mean, I think 
the first year, you know, I made maybe 65 and the second year, maybe 85. Uh, okay. Uh, but then nine 11 happened and that kind of shook the core of everything. And, um, especially the publishing industry took a big hit. And most of my clients were in, uh, were authors, um, or national level speakers, you know, cause I had a lot of customers both before I started my business, but while I was still working for the publishing company and after that, um, a lot of my design customers were like the biggest names in charismatic Christianity, you know, so like the Brownsville revival and the Toronto outpouring and all of those, like all of those leaders, I designed all their books. And, um, and so I became pretty well known. And so plugged into a couple big publishing companies and was doing their design, some of their design work and some still for destiny image and others. And then a couple ministries where I was designing all their DVD and CD covers and all of that. Um, and then nine 11 happened and everything ended. <laughs> and the next 12 months I made $11,000 and, uh, it really provided a writing on the wall kind of thing for me because <clears throat> I remember my father-in-law at the time, he would, they would come up to visit and I didn't have a job. So to speak, I mean, I didn't have a regular job. I just had my company, and, but my company wasn't making any money. And he's like, you need to do whatever it takes to provide for your family, you know? And, uh, our house was in foreclosure. Um, and I remember going for a walk this one day um, down the road because the house that we lived in is the house I'm in now. Um, but I was going down, walking down the road and I'm walking along and I'm just kind of turning things over in my mind going, what in the world is going on? And I remember almost audibly, I hear stop. And so I literally stopped that in my tracks and it's like, look down. I look down and there's a dime and a penny between my feet and I'm like oh 11 cents and again this voice said remember the number 11 I'm like, okay you know so I didn't think anything of it finished my walk because I was walking pretty much every day went back had to run some errands so went down to the gas station to get some gas and just put it on auto the pump kicks off I go over and I look at it and it's $11.11. Like, okay, that's kind of creepy, you know? And so I went and ran my errands. I came back into the house, walked into the kitchen. I think I was getting some groceries. Looked over at the clock on the microwave, and it's 11.11. I'm like, what in the world is going on? And this continued for several days. So finally... I got the bright idea to look up the number 11 on the internet. And the first, I, I don't know anything about numbers at this point. So I figured, well, you know, the first website's as good as any website. So I just literally clicked on the first result that came up at that time. And long story short, what I took out of it was that the number 11 meant the end. And I'm like, great. <laughs> just what I need. My business is tanking. And all of a sudden, God is telling me that it's the end. Um, that's just terrific. So, you know, I went out and I started putting in applications. 
16 applications to be exact. And once again, you know, overqualified, overqualified, blah, blah, blah. Even with companies that I knew and people who worked there, like never got one call back ever. And so I finally realized, you know, this is on me. Like I need to figure shit out because it's the end after all. Well, later I came to realize that it was the end of a cycle, not the end of the world. <laughs> um, because I was given this analogy where it's like, if you want to go to Target, or actually Target didn't exist then. It was Walmart or Kmart. Like, can you get, this is how it was presented to me. Can you get to Kmart by heading in Walmart's direction? Like, no, they're on two completely different roads. Then to get to Walmart, it means you have to change direction, right? Yes. That's what's going on with you right now. You're coming up to a stop sign. You're getting ready to make a right-hand turn. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> that made sense. Didn't pay the bills. House still in foreclosure. So long story short, the new year happened 2012 and actually I guess 2011 I'd made 11,000 or 2001 I made $11,000 that's what it was and 2000 I made the 80 so the 60 I don't know where that number came from so um so we were less than 30 days away from sheriff sale going into 2012 no idea what we were going to do on January 1st by January 4th, the uh, house was out of foreclosure and I had more customers than I could keep up with. Literally in four days. But it scared me because I'm thinking, this cannot happen again. And I already started getting some feedback from the uh, reps that I was working for at these publishing companies that, you know, like they'd hit me bid out on jobs. And I mean, at the time I was getting like 1500 bucks a cover and, you know, um, depending on the page count, it was another 1500 to two grand just for the interior layout. So you're talking $3,500 a book is basically what I was getting. And there were designers coming fresh out of school that were offering to do the whole thing for 500. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that you're going to have a better margin if you can get decent quality for 500 compared to 3,500. And so I was starting to see the writing on the wall, but I didn't know what to do about it. And, uh, and I was concerned, especially after just having come through that whole mess that we could lose our house again. And, you know, I had two young girls and I didn't want to go through that again. And so I figured it's up to me. I need to figure this shit out. And so late one night, I got the bright idea. Um, I had, back then I had really high speed internet because um, one of our friends wanted to uh, offer dial up in our area. And uh, he was already in the local town and wanted to expand into our area. But to do so, he needed a place to dial in. And we had just built this house. Uh, even though we had just, well, earlier we had built the house and um, that we now just almost lost. 
Uh, and so he had asked if um, he could use our basement as like his hub, uh, which basically meant that he paid to have a T1 line put in our house. And I had access to T1 speed, you know, <laughs> uh, ever since 1995, um, which was awesome. Uh, so I had already had T1 speed for five years and uh, or seven years, I guess, by that point. And so surfing the Internet was kind of fun. Um, but back then, even you know, I didn't have to really deal with the dial up experience. Um, but anyway, so late one night after everyone went to bed, I got online and I don't think Google was really much of a thing yet. Um, or maybe it was just starting to become, you know, everybody was still using Netscape and things like that. So I went on and, um, did a search for how to make money online. And I've shared a lot of that story and I'm not going to repeat it now, but long story short, I discovered Joe Vitale's website, mrfire.com and started following him. And that led me to, uh, Pat O'Brien, Jim Edwards, and some of those guys, Armin Morin. And, um, I, so I started creating my own products. My first product was Public Domain Codebook, which was an outgrowth of my first teleseminar listening to Joe talk. And around the same time, uh, friends of ours had come to visit and asked me if I had ever heard of this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I never had. So I read through that and it really opened up my eyes and I'm like, you know what? I made a solid decision years ago to kind of skip college and all of that. And, but it got me hungry for business because I had not read business books up until that point. I was reading a lot of the mystical stuff, you know, Desert Fathers and Teresa of Avila and, you know, a lot of those kinds of things. And, um, doing a lot of research on, um, language and spirituality and those kinds of things. And so, um, it got me hooked on business books. And the second book that I read was secrets of the millionaire mind by T Harv Eker. And I, as I was reading through there, you know, he made the statement in the introduction, something to the effect of that, um, uh, your financial, your financial outcome is basically equal to the average of your five or your top, your five closest friends or 10 closest friends or something like that. And I remember taking the, taking it out to the kitchen and read it to Deborah. And I'm like, listen to this. So I read it to her and, and we said at the same time, we need new friends, which was true. You know, it's like, holy cow. Um, and so, uh, through a long series of circumstances, I created my first book, you know, just out of research. And um, around the same time is when I was still doing these, this publishing company and working with these authors. And I was having a lot of trouble getting distribution into Canada. And so I was listening to another David Garfinkel teleseminar with David Hancock. And um, who was the owner of Morgan James Publishing. And, um, so David, over the course of his talk said, Hey, if any of you have any publishing questions or anything, feel free to give me a call. Here's my number. Like who does that? You know, well, I wrote the number down, of course, but I didn't call it. 
for two weeks because I didn't want to come across like I was a groupie or weirdo or something, which is kind of funny in hindsight. And if you know David, it's especially funny. But so anyway, um, this is actually before I was, well, I was just in the finishing stages of writing public domain code book. Um, but I was having these distribution issues. So I called up David and we ended up talking for an hour. And um, long story short, he offered to bring my label into the Morgan James family so that I could benefit from their um, distribution relationships through Ingram and some of the other companies that they were using, which was great. And um, I recognized early on that this guy was amazing. This He was really something else, very encouraging. And um, he's like, so what are you working on? What are you doing? It's like, well, I just finished writing this book and I'm not sure what to do with it and other than self-publish. And he's like, why don't you send me a copy? So I emailed him the PDF and he's like, how about we publish it under Morgan James? That way you can, you know, run around and tell people you're published by a New York publisher. I'm like, okay, whatever. So that's what I did. And so they actually published my first book. Around the same time, I knew that he was publishing a lot of authors from the internet marketing space. And that's where I wanted to go. I just didn't have the knowledge experience or anything. And so I called him up one day and said, you know, you've been really great with me, but I have a favor to ask. And he's like, what's that? And I said, I'd love for you to mentor me if you would consider it because you're connected with a lot of people that I need to be connected with. Um, if I'm going to do anything with this online business and I don't know how to make that happen. Um, and I'm happy to like, I'll design book covers for you for free, you know, in exchange, um, you know, leverage your assets. It's a big lesson in that. And, um, long story short, he said, I can't do that. And I said, Oh, okay. That's fine. I mean, I know it was a long shot. I just wanted to ask. And he's like, here's what I am. Here's what I am willing to do. I will pay to take you to the marketing events. You can stay with me. I'll pay your tickets. I'll introduce you to everybody that I know. And not just introduce you, but make sure that it's a quality introduction. And you can design covers for my business, but I'm going to pay you what I pay every other artist. How does that sound? Oh, and if you need a new computer, I'll buy you one of those too. My first Mac. And that's exactly what he did. And so, you know, he's the one who introduced me to um, everybody. Armin Morin and Joel Calm and Russell Brunson and um, Jim Edwards and like the who's who. Everybody I ended up designing half of their book covers um, just because I asked.
and uh, and they were, like he said, quality introductions. He just gave so much. So, um, I kind of jumped on the public domain bandwagon pretty hardcore and quickly established myself as the expert, mostly because I bought the URL, the public domain expert. <laughs> so I branded myself as an expert before I really was because I owned the URL after all. And, um, but, you know, I was so driven by research that it wasn't really hard to become the expert because I was taking it way further than anybody else had done it before. And so out of the code book, I mean, I created other products and I re like I remember the first time I met Joel Kahn, um, I handed him two business cards. One was for cover design and one was for public domain expert. And he says, well, which one are you? like the public domain expert or Tony, the cover designer. And I said, I guess I'm the public domain expert. And then he handed my other card back to me. And he's like, here, you can't be both. And I'm like, that makes sense. And he's like, so do you have any products? And I said, yeah, I have a code book. And he later promoted that for me. But He's like, so how long did it take you to create the product? And I said, 11 months, which it did. It took me 11 months to make the code book. And um, he said, you're not going to make it. And I said, what do you mean I'm not going to make it? He's like, dude, you can't make it in this industry taking nearly a year to create a product. He's like, you should have that done in a couple of weeks. I'm like, that's impossible. And he's like, no, it's not. And you need to figure it out. And so, you know, he walked away. This is God. This is back in. Um, geez, I don't even remember. 2005, maybe. 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. And. Um, I thought he was an arrogant ass, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it's like. Screw you, buddy. I don't care if you're successful or not. Um, but anyways, of course he was right. And I figured that out. And so the next month after that event, it was one of our Memorial's big seminars is where we were. And after that event, I created four or five products the next month. And um, I cheated. I used uh, PLR. And... Uh, did a bang up job on them too. And they sold pretty well. Um, just basically redesigned them and rewrote them. And, uh, everybody thought they were mine, which they were that version, but they weren't mine. Um, it was just private label rights. And, um, so then I took all of the information that I gleaned from the research, to, uh, creating public domain code book and those other books. And, uh, around that time, there was this technology that had come out. Um, that enabled you to build your own um, browser add-on 
and um, like a toolbar. And so I used that to create the public domain toolbar, which essentially was the code book except in searchable web-based form. And it worked really well um, until a lot of the antivirus software started flagging it because they were taking shortcuts in how they identified viruses. And so I constantly had to update it. It became a royal pain in the butt, but not before I sold probably a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of that toolbar. Um, it was one of the first really big wins that I had. And um, so I remember like in the heyday of me promoting that, um, I had uh, connected with uh, Jim Edwards because I designed a couple of his book covers and I just was a member of his one membership and just really liked him as a guy person. And so he agreed to have me on a webinar to promote it. Um, this would have been in 2008. And um, so we promoted it. The first webinar I'd ever been on before. He was like the, one of the very first, if not the first, to embrace webinars. Which is why he's actually considered the king of webinars. And um, so he had me on and we sold like $70,000 worth of that toolbar in the space of an hour. Well, the sales happened over a couple of days, but you know, it was an hour long webinar. And I had just never experienced anything like that before. But it showed me that it showed me what was possible. And, um, Around that same time period is when my first wife and I uh, filed for divorce. There was a lot of crazy going on. And um, that we actually filed for divorce in September. And then in October is whenever I, I did the webinar with Jim. And um, did one or two other smaller promotions and things. But um, a lot of my list building at that time was happening through um, Google AdSense or AdWords. And um, I figured out how to get it dialed in pretty decently, and it was working. I was making more money than I was spending, so that's a good thing. So then a couple months later is when my dad died. And... Um, I just unplugged because I didn't know what to do. And so I was really grateful for that promo that I did with Georgia or with Jim. I mean, and of course I paid him this affiliate commission and all of that. But so all said and done, I ended up with like $38,000 and, and plus some money that I made uh, in a couple months after that, before my dad passed. And so I lived on that money for months because, I mean, I was a single guy. I, you know, I didn't really have many expenses back then uh, in my car and all that. Um, and so I just walked away from my business. I essentially unplugged.
I didn't know what to do. And uh, so finally, after I started getting back into the scheme of things a couple months after Dad passed, uh, so like April, I think, Dad passed beginning of February, um, I finally felt like I wanted to work again. And so I remember calling up David Hancock again and said, because he knew everything was going on and people who were on my list, of course, knew. And many of those folks are still with me today. Some of you might be on here now. I don't know. But um, I called up David and I said, I don't know what to do. I, I don't even know if I have a business anymore. Like, I haven't hardly emailed my folks and all of that other than to explain what was going on. Because my dad or my dog died around the same time. And it's funny because I had more comments and condolences for my dog than for my dad, which I thought was kind of weird, but, um, you know, <laughs> such as it is. So he's like, you know, people are cooler than you might think. And they understand. It's like, just email them and tell them what's been going on and, you know, give them an opportunity to, you know, see, to validate where you are and everything. So, I did that and it was really great. And so I stepped back, started stepping back into the flow of everything. And through that time I started speaking and, um, um, around that time is whenever I went to a Kim MacArthur event and, um, met Felicia Slattery and Donna Fox and, um, a bunch of other, really awesome people, most of which are still friends. I mean, Felicia is one of my best friends still today. She was the best man at my wedding <laughs> uh, with Kristen. And um, so I started getting my confidence back. And then around that same period of time, I started figuring out that there were a lot of people who wanted to know how to publish books. And I knew that, like I knew that business, I knew the design business, I knew the publishing business, so I had done it all. Later, after I got out of my own way, I realized a lot of people wanted to learn how to take better pictures. And I knew that, I had done that. Um, I also discovered that people wanted to know how to research. They, there's a lot of things that they wanted to learn. And so the big wake-up call for me after going through that crazy transition and trying to figure out where I wanted to take my business and everything was that all of those life experiences that I had from the time I was 18 clear through to today, present day, uh, interesting, it's 11.11 right now, so I guess it's time for me to end here shortly. Um, I gained insight into how to present those in a way that could help people. And I've taught more now in the last 9, 10 years. Um, well, more than that, actually. 13 I've taught more in the last 13 years than I ever would have imagined being able to teach. You know, had I just stuck with going to Bible school or whatever. 
And um, it's been quite the journey. Now, I'd love to say that it's all fun and games, you know, because you can, you know, whenever you cross a threshold of a half a million dollars or more, there's a lot of things that you can do. And doesn't necessarily mean you should, <laughs> but you can. And um, it's been, it continues to be a learning experience. But one of the big lessons that I've been figuring out lately, and I've really figured these things out, and I think it's a, a great message. First of all, in what I experienced through building my business, you know, the one thing that I can say is follow your gut. Always be grateful. And take massive action. I mean, you really have to take action. It's work. It takes work. But you can't lose sight of who you are either. And I've certainly done my best to do that a few times along the path. And um, one of the big revelations that I've had recently, even though I've loved and appreciated every part of my learning process and growth and all the stuff that I've created over the years, one of the things that I've discovered fairly recent, and this shouldn't be any massive surprise to any of you guys since you've been here for all these Nerd Unscripteds, is that... Um, is just how important it is to not lose yourself and get caught up in, um, you know, being defined certain ways. Um, and like for me, one of the big sacrifices until recently was um, who I was as a kid, you know, somebody who drew a lot, who wrote a lot, um, and took lots of pictures. Like, that was me as a kid. And, yes, that's been a part of my journey and voyage through business and everything. Taught all of that stuff, of course, in different forms. But to actually just do it. To just be, you know, to just take photos. To just sit down and write. To just take time to draw has been extremely challenging up until recently because, you know, it's kind of like being the job, you know, you have to always be the job. And I mean, I figured out ways to leverage what I teach so that I could still do what I wanted anyway and teach other people how to do it as well and make money from that. And that's been awesome. And I've been grateful for doing that. But, um, one of the big things that I've had to change recently is that, and I just told Kristen literally this morning, I said, you know, I turn 58 next year. Said, I am not going to show up into my 70s and then think, you know what, I need to get that novel written. I need to get those pictures drawn. Like, I am just not going to do that. 
Because at the end of the day, I mean, you could look at all the courses that I have, hundreds probably now, I don't know, well over a hundred, think what a legacy. And it is, and I'm grateful for it. And I love doing what I do, I still do. So don't think I'm going to stop. You aren't going to get off that easy. But I'm not taking pictures at all. None, except with my phone. So I guess you could kind of count that. But, you know, up until recently, I haven't been writing other than outlines. I mean, I wrote the kid's book at the beginning of last year, or this year, whenever it was, um, First Flight, and I'm getting ready to finally illustrate that. I haven't been drawing at all. And um, it's all just been eating at me, you know? Which is why I've started embracing it again. I grew up also as a kid who spent all of his time outside. Hunting, fishing. But I, I never, ultimately I realized, maybe just even today. Like, I wasn't good at it. <laughs> I wasn't really good at hunting. I think I just enjoyed being outside. I mean, I did okay with squirrels and stuff. And my grandmother made great squirrel pot pie. But um, I like just being out in nature. I mean, I was telling Kristen, you know, last time I went turkey hunting, and which I never got a turkey. But the last time I went turkey hunting, just to show you how awesome I was as a hunter, I sat out there. I did calls. I did all that stuff. Nothing. Never saw a turkey. Anything. And I was leaning up against this pine tree most of the evening just waiting for him to come in, you know. Because when you're turkey hunting, you don't exactly go stomping around. Um, <laughs> so I'm leaning up against this pine tree, my rifle's next to me, or shotgun, whatever it was. Shotgun, I guess. And um, nothing. I'd hear one every so often, but I couldn't figure out where he was. And tried calling him in. Apparently I wasn't very good at turkey calls either. And so finally it was almost dark. And I had about a mile and a half walk out of the woods. Uh, to get back to my car to get to the house. Which the house was only a half a mile from where I had parked. So that kind of shows you how we were like right in the mountains. Right at the mountain's edge. And um, so... <laughs> I stood up and uh, I grabbed my shotgun and literally took one step forward and all of a sudden I hear this loud noise and I see this motion above me. Turns out the whole time I was sitting under the tree trying to figure out where this turkey was. He literally was setting 20 feet above my head. That bird could have pooped on me. <laughs> he was so close. And I didn't even know it. <laughs> and I didn't even see him until after, you know. And then it was too dark to even get off shot. And um, so, needless to say, not a great hunter. Um, but realizing that I just love being outside and and I think what it was and and I haven't gotten out a lot 
Um, I just a couple weeks ago, I went out for a couple hours because I was feeling starting to feel burned out, and it just energized me so much. Just that couple hours, like remember back about a month or so ago when I really went on a major burst of course training. That was thanks in part to a couple hours out in nature. So my goal here is to get back to nature, not so much to hunt or fish because <coughs> I'm not really good at that anyway. And I really like just being outdoors, but it also doesn't mean that I'm going to start cranking out courses. Like there's nobody, nobody's business because I need to slow down. Um, some of it is, has been just to be really transparent. Some of the push, even though I love and believe in everything that I teach, um, the push has been just to keep cash flow moving uh, because of the stores, because the stores haven't done well, as well as we would prefer. That's why we moved Toy Box. And now it's more profitable than it's ever been. Uh, so it was a very smart move. Now we're looking at uh, Nerdvana, which we're not closing Nerdvana, but I do have a really cool story that I'll share with you. We'll just kind of wrap up here. I apologize that it's been a little bit of a wander, but. Um, so September, see, we're in October. So September was the worst month that Nirvana ever had, ever. It was embarrassing. Um, multiple days where there were zero sales or five bucks or whatever. And we couldn't figure it out. Um, we thought that it had something to do with us moving toy box at the beginning of the month, which was on the third, which is when we left the manager of the toy box go. Um, and his wife is the manager of Nerdvana. And so we were concerned that it would cause issue, you know, and I guess probably it did for them. I mean, he's able to draw on employment stuff, but uh, we were concerned that the, um, that the negative energy would impact the store. And of course, that is exactly what appeared to happen. Um, worst month ever. And so we've been trying to figure it out. We went in and smudged and that didn't really make a difference. Um, my daughter, we put my daughter in as a, um, assistant manager. And so she was working there a lot, which she's very in tune with things and still same result. And so, um, except for like one Saturday or something. And so the other night I was downstairs pacing and, um, I actually it was after last week's show. Actually, sorry. Remember last week, whenever I was talking about the transformational power of gratitude in the midst of that long story and how it can change things. There was a statement that I made in last week's show right in there where as it came out of my mouth, the thought popped into my head. That is the answer to Nerdvana. Okay. Um, and so I told Kristen about it after the show. And then that night, so last Tuesday night, um, I went downstairs and I realized that because of our experience with, um, with toy box and by the way, just to kind of give you, um, a frame of reference, um, 
This year alone, Toy Box lost $240,000. So that gives you a context of what I'm talking about. We won't talk about the entire length of the... From the stores open, that's a even scarier number. But anyway, so we are kind of a bit um, shell-shocked over all of that. And of course, having to deal with that because you know where that money came from, right? From my business. Uh, and... Kristen's online business, like our online businesses are what made up that difference. But, um, so, you know, we weren't getting a lot of cooperation from the town and all of that. And it left a, you know, it left us in a bit of an attitude toward downtown and, and people and all of that, like the borough council and all of it. Uh, we have not been very happy campers with all of that and going to the council meetings and everything. It's just not been a good experience. And so um, last week after this show, it occurred to me that it, we were anything but grateful. Um, we were pissed off. I mean, quite frankly. And so I took some time to kind of sort through those feelings and to start looking for things about um, our experience in downtown, uh, which now just includes Nerdvana since toy box is a Shire now. And so I started thinking through the things that I could be grateful for, for Nerdvana. And, um, so I went through those and I mean, I genuinely meant it, of course, just, you know, everything that I could think of just, stuff that I was grateful for. And maybe that happened over the course of a couple nights. So here's the interesting thing, and I'll wrap it up with this because it's been long. Um, literally the day after I did that, literally the day after I did that, our sales spiked. And they haven't stopped. We went from worst month ever in over a year to decent sales every day just from me taking an hour walking in my basement saying what I was grateful for in that store. Now, I mean, they're not like $1,000 days every day. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> but we made more in that period of time than, um, than we have, not in the entire previous month, but in a couple weeks. And uh, it's been, like, if nothing else proves the power of gratitude, it's that experience. And um, I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> I don't think I need to say anything more. But anyway, there's a couple comments that I want to address here and then we will wrap things up. Uh, let's see. 
some of these were at different times as I was talking, so I'm just kind of go through them. Uh, George Ann says, sounds like that's where you were supposed to be. Every part of it is where I was supposed to be at the time. Um, I guess the life lessons in it is never take anything that happens to you for granted. Always look for ways to use it to help other people. Yeah, it's probably one of the big lessons. Um, don't overstay your welcome. Don't overstep your bounds. <laughs> Take massive action, but not too much, because sometimes you get so busy doing the stuff, you kind of forget yourself in the process, which is a, has been a big thing for me. Um, Mark says, yet another past experience we have in common. I learned and used all the printing equipment, stack cameras, phototype setting equipment, I learned stripping negatives, burning plates, the whole shebang before I was out of high school. I even did um, did a hand-done airbrushed four-color SEP once. Yikes. <laughs> that sounds crazy. And I agree about Oklahoma. Fort Sill is where I went through Army basic training, and I've never been back. I liked Oklahoma. I mean, it was kind of a cool time out there, and I've been back once or twice. But I took my mom out there. She always wanted to go to Oklahoma. So I, um, the summer after my dad passed, I took her out with my girls. Um, but anyway. Uh, Mary says, wow, blessed history, Tony. And you have given back all you were given. Well, thanks. Um, Mark says, another thing we have in common is that our emotions are on our sleeves. And we have, for the most part, embraced it. Because everything we do is contingent on our passions, and they are run by our emotions. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I'm not going to make any apologies for getting choked up. Um, some of these things are a big deal, at least to me, you know. They help shape who I am today. And so, my dad was the same way. Mary says, a reminder to me, too, though your experiences are prolific. Seems to me, Tony, do not die with your music still in you, Wayne Dyer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all the replays, Luke, there are, um, they are on SoundCloud or iTunes. The last couple I haven't uploaded yet. I'll be doing that here in the next day or two. But you can access them either place. Just do a search for Nerd Unscripted. Or go to nerdunscripted.com and click on one of the links below it at the bottom of the page. Mark says, I've been on a creative hiatus for about a year as well, only doing the things that come to me, which is actually a lot. But I put all personal projects aside because of perceived mental and physical strain. I too have been itching to create, but I'm not sure what. I have had pop-up thoughts about a collaboration that has yet to reveal itself. Yeah, that's why, you know, this could be a whole um, session just in and of itself, is the mental tricks we play on ourselves to justify why we do or don't do certain things. Um, I'm probably the king of that if anybody is, but anyway... Uh, Kathleen says, thanks for taking us on the journey. You're welcome. And Carolyn says, thank you. Good story and good reminders. I enjoyed it. 
Thanks. And uh, Anne says, thanks, Tony. Great info to initiate more of my energy to increase my efforts. I have to go to a doctor's appointment. See you, Anne. So anyway, I could probably talk for hours, as you would imagine, but it kind of gives you the idea of the transition. I think in a lot of that, part of that journey was me discovering who I was and what that looked like and gaining the courage to believe in myself enough that I could do it. And that at the critical times, I needed it. People showed up in my life that did amazing, phenomenal things. And um, I'm nobody more special than any of the rest of you, so I have every reason to believe that the same would be true for you. Uh, George Ann says, awesome, awesome session today. Thank you for sharing your inspiring story. You're very welcome. So that's all I have, folks. Thank you for joining me here. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree, Gary. It's like maybe all of us have been through stuff like this. Absolutely. Everybody has a story. And you shouldn't be afraid to share it. Um, because you never know who it could inspire. So thanks, everyone. We'll get together here again next week. And I hope you have an awesome rest of this week.